we begin in the middle of the story. Just like Christmas does in your life, the long foretold event finally comes to pass in the birth of Jesus. Generations have waited for this moment, and with his birth, a new air of hope and healing. You see, the nature of hope is that it is a longing, a longing for the not yet realized. You may not know what Christmas means right now, just like the Magi didn't know exactly what the star meant, only that something important was happening. And still a star leads us to Bethlehem, where the hopes and fears of every year come together. And a child's birth gives us hope for what is possible. Good morning. My name is Adam Rowe. I'm the student ministry pastor at our Wilmington campus. And I've had the privilege to be on a small team with Pastor Brian that has been thinking about Advent and kind of designing our experience here as we looked at the story. So I'm, I'm so excited for the opportunity to get to close it out with all of you today. But I recognize that this is a day where many travel, and I'm sure some of our people are away, and, and I would guess that in our campuses, that, that there's a number of people that are here visiting with friends and with family. So if that's you and you're here visiting, I just want to say welcome. We are so, so glad you're here, and I am, I'm positive that your friends and your family, they probably sat you down and watched all of the previous sermons with you. <laughs> and explained it and showed you their notes and maybe like gave you a quick quiz on the way here. Like they wanted, and if they didn't do this, could you look at them right now and just give them a little disapproving shake? So if, that's, if you're the one person who they didn't do that to, let me, let me catch us all up on where we've been. So we have spent, as a community, we spent the whole month and all of Advent looking at the important biblical concept of hope. We started at the beginning of the month by saying, here is why hope, and kind of opening up scripture and saying, here is why hope is so critical for human flourishing. And what we discovered as we looked in there deeper is that hope was like a central theme all throughout the scripture, all throughout the Christmas story, and all throughout the gospel message. So we went from there and we said, you know, how can we, through this story here, how does this story show us hope from our past, from what God has done? Then we looked at our present, and we said, where do we find hope in our present through the story of Jesus? And then on Christmas Eve, we actually said, it, it turns out this hope is not just a concept, it is a who. Like, hope is with us in the person of Jesus Christ. So what I want to do this morning is, just for a little bit, I want to look kind of towards the future. How does this story give us hope in our future? Because I believe strongly that it does. But before we do that, I want us to pray together. Uh, like I said the last time I was here, what we're doing here should not be a one-way street. Uh, this isn't just coming and sitting and listening to somebody talk. This is us as a community at all of our campuses, online, whatever we're doing. This is us opening up God's word and us wrestling with it together. Amen? Amen. So when we pray, we pray together. So what I want you to do is I just want you to do something like to participate in this prayer with me. You could stand if you want, you could kneel, you could open your hands, just do something that says to God and to your own spirit, like I'm, I'm in this as we pray together. Now, I recognize that there are probably a number of us in here who aren't even sure where we stand on the whole God thing. Or, or even if he exists, or if he does, if you want anything to do with him, and, and if that's you, please know you are 100% welcome here. 
I'm so, I'm so glad that you're here with us, and there's zero pressure. You can, you can do whatever you think is comfortable while we pray, but I'm just gonna ask one small thing. While we pray, would you just ask kind of in the quiet of your heart and your mind, would you just ask God to speak to you today? And let's just see what he does. All right, are you with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, I wanna say thank you I want to say thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this incredible congregation, this church that you have given us, this group called Grace Chapel. It's been such a blessing to me and my family and such a blessing to countless others. And Lord, today I ask that you would speak to us. Would you please, through me, would they be your words and not mine? Would the Holy Spirit pour out on us and would you change us? Would you give us a glimpse at what you are doing and how you are orchestrating our future. Would you give us a glimpse of hope? Would you give us peace and assurance? Lord, we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, and we trust you this morning. It's in his name. Amen. So I was 21 years old. It was a bitterly, bitterly cold February afternoon, and I found myself up at Gordon College. I was a senior, and I was picking my way across the quad, trying not to fall because it was snow and ice covered, and the bitter sub-zero wind was biting its way through my clothing. And in that moment, I had an epiphany. It was something that struck me that I had never thought before. As the wind bit its way through my clothing, I thought to myself, it's not cold everywhere. (laughs) 21 years old, I had never really, like I knew, but I had never really understood that before. And I literally, I stopped in my tracks and I thought, it's not cold everywhere. And then the next thought was like, boom, right on top of it. When I graduate, I could move somewhere warm. (laughs) And I did. Uh, Just like several months later, I graduated college. I took an internship out in California. I met people. I ended up applying for a residency at a church in Sacramento. And eight years later, I'm still living at this point in Northern California. And I am loving it. My wife and I, every January or February, there'd be like this 70-degree weekend. We'd be out walking and hiking through the green hills of San Francisco, and we'd turn to each other and we'd say, this is January. (laughs) California ruined me on winter. Actually, by the end of my time there, if it was going to drop below 70, I would bring a jacket (laughs) because it was going to get chilly. I moved back six years ago, and I think my body has adjusted, but I feel like I left just a little piece of my mind over there, and I've never quite gotten over it. But here's what I've discovered. I actually do love winter. Like, I love winter. I love the huge storms when it shuts everything down, but I generally love winter up until about January 2nd. Because it just feels right. There's like trees and there's, there's beautiful lights and there's music and there's all of this stuff. But on January 2nd, it's like somebody pulls the rug out from under you and boom, all of that's done. Anybody else? Like it, it feels like, how many of you, when you first go back to work after the holidays, does it feel a little bit like a sense of whiplash? <laughs> right? There's just this moment. One of our congregation members, Megan Blosser, wrote this last year for an Advent devotional, and I love it. It says this. There's something nostalgic about Christmas, something reflective that sets us looking backwards to former times, happier memories, what-ifs, and remember-whens. Then within days, January snaps our gaze forward. Goals and resolutions, a new year and visions of what we hope 
to be. I don't know about you, not everybody's this way, but on November 1st, that's when the Christmas music starts in my house. I start getting excited, I start thinking about it, I start anticipating being home for Christmas, all of those things. And then the day finally arrives, and sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, you never know, it's kind of a mixture of family and craziness. But all of a sudden, a week later, the bills show up. (laughs) And you realize how much you've spent. And the, the magazines arrive, talking about decluttering and weight loss and all these things to figure out after the holidays. And you go to the gym, and the gym parking lot is filled. You're like, who all are you people? <laughs> you weren't here last week. And sometimes you're like, I wasn't here last week. We find ourselves all of a sudden without the holidays there anymore. We find ourselves looking towards the future. And for a lot of us, I think there's a bit of a sense of melancholy. There's a bit of uncertainty as now this, this time was over and now we start wondering about things that we can't control. You know, will that promotion come in over the new year that I was promised? Uh, will that college application that I put in, will it be successful? Will I get that letter from the school that I'm desperate to go to? Will I hear from the doctor and what will they say? We find ourselves, after the hype of the holidays, wondering about the future and what it will bring to us with a long and dark and cold winter ahead. And I think, as I read this story, and as I've spent time kind of trying to travel with Mary and Joseph, I feel like that's exactly where they were as well. After, after the extraordinary events of Jesus' birth, they're now in kind of the ordinary routine of being new parents. After shepherds and angels and all of that, now there's burping and nursing and changing diapers or whatever the equivalent of diapers was, I couldn't find out in my study. (laughs) That's a dumb joke, thank you, I appreciate it. (laughs) And I'm sure, I'm sure they were exhausted. I'm sure there was like this sense of uncertainty, right? What is this noise this little child is making? What is going on? Is he okay? Who, who okayed me to be the one to raise him? Like I, I, remember, I remember that first night with our son Truman in the hospital. I remember waking up to every single noise, absolutely certain that whatever it was, something was wrong, and I was not qualified to fix it. Anybody else? And nobody said, here's your son. He's the hope of the world. Don't screw up. So I'm sure, I'm sure they were just as exhausted, I'm sure they were just as overwhelmed, and I'm sure there was this incredible sense of uncertainty for them as new parents. We showed this picture last year on Christmas Eve, and I, I love it, so I held on to it. You've got Mary there, and she's got her head against Joseph, she's, she's sleeping, he's staring intently at the baby, I feel like he's trying to figure out how he's going to pay for college. <laughs> but there's just this sense of exhaustion in there. After the crazy events around his birth, they find themselves in the normalcy and the uncertainty of raising a newborn. And just like us, as we head into the new year with uncertainties and with all these expectations on us, there were uncertainties and expectations for them as well. So turn with me. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verse 21. If you're looking for it, it's it's a bit, bit like past midway point in your Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Or if you're using a Bible app, it's under Luke. Also a dumb joke for you. But we are going to turn there together this morning. Luke, as I mentioned a few weeks ago, he was a trained doctor and historian. 
And he interviewed all sorts of people and recorded this story for us. So in Jewish culture, there were certain things. When you had a newborn child, certain things that you had to do, especially if it was a newborn and a firstborn boy. At the eight-day mark, you took the baby to be circumcised and named. And this is what Luke says. Eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. So when you had a boy, these things happened in order. Circumcision and naming at eight days old. The the circumcision was like a, a sign of the Jewish nation, their, their special relationship, their set-apartness, their relationship to God. And the naming, I'm sure, was an equally important thing. I mean, you had made it that far. I remember getting to the first week and thinking, we've survived. Maybe I can do this thing. So it was an important event, and it, it usually happened to kind of at your local, with your local priest and your local synagogue. And then you would go home, and for 32 days, you would await the next big moment. And at the 40-day mark, you would travel to Jerusalem and you would offer sacrifices. This is what Luke tells us. He said, then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says this, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifices as required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. So these sacrifices, they, they, they all kind of serve two purposes. The first one was for the mother. She had been considered after the birth ceremonially unclean. And now that she offers the sacrifice, they consider her clean again. She can go back into the temple. She can interact in kind of normal, daily, everyday routines with the community. So that's important. But the second one was equally important. It was for the child. It was a dedication of this young boy to God. A reminder that God alone gives life and that this tiny little child is a gift from him. It was actually, it was considered a redemption. You were redeeming it back. You were buying the child back from God who had given you this great gift. So you were giving him a great gift as well. And it was important. It was a big moment for the family. But it was ordinary, Everything up to this point, this is how it went for her sister Elizabeth. This is how it went for all sorts of families. But here, at this moment, something extraordinary happens. So read on with me. It says, at that time, there was a man in Jerusalem named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly awaiting the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms, praised God, saying this, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations. He is the glory of your people Israel. All right, so this, this is a fascinating exchange to me for a couple different reasons. The first one is, is we've talked over the last several weeks about this long period of silence, 400 years without a prophet, without a king, without a judge, without a word from God. 
And all of a sudden, God is, he's on the move all over the place. And he, his Holy Spirit, God himself, is on this man, Simeon. And the second Simeon sees this child, he knows, he recognizes who he is. And while holding this tiny, five-week-old child in his arms, he prophesies and declares him to be God's salvation. The one the nation of Israel has been waiting for, the one they have been desperate for, the one who will free them from bondage, uh, the one who will rescue them from the godless, sinful, heathen nations around them. Or at least that's what they expected to hear. But it's not exactly what he says, is it? Look back with me. He took the child in his arms, praising God, saying, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace as you have promised. I've seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He's a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. God's salvation, which he has prepared for all people. I mean, what is Simeon saying here? This is, this is the Messiah, the one who's supposed to rescue them. This is the one who's supposed to bring back the golden age of his ancestor David, the one who is supposed to provide Israel with strength and power and dominion. And yet he says, a light to reveal God to the nations? Uh, what is going on? Well, let's read on. It says this, Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about him. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, this child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall and others to rise. He's been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. This prophecy over this tiny infant is as fascinating as I'm sure it was concerning to Mary. I mean, imagine handing somebody your newborn child and they said, his future will be as if a sword will pierce your very soul. You know, congratulations. I'm sure she was curious and concerned and, and, and worried, but interestingly enough, these words line up perfectly with what we talked about a few weeks ago. Genesis 3.15, the Proto-Evangelion, that promise from God right at the beginning, at the fall, that God would set things to right, that he would send a future Messiah, but that that rescue would not be a painless process. And it also lines up perfectly, if you read on a little bit later, with what happens when the Magi show up. They come bringing this gift of myrrh, an embalming ointment, to a peasant child, there's this sense that Simeon comes along and he blesses them, but then he prophesies this paradoxical effect on Israel over Jesus. He would bring light and salvation, but he would also cause division. Some would rise because of him, but others would fall. There's, there's no overwhelming acceptance in this prophecy. In fact, many would not recognize him and would reject him outright. There would be with Jesus no neutral ground. People would either accept him or they would reject him outright. But it wasn't just for the nation of Israel. It was for all people. I mean, it was for me. It was for you. It was for Jews. It was for non-Jews. It was for the world. It was a light to the nations. Jesus coming 2,000 years ago brought hope to the world. And that hope is still present today. It wasn't just for one particular group of people. And hope really does change 
everything. Let me explain what I mean. Uh, Just a few weeks ago, I I talked about being a Red Sox fan growing up in the 80s and the 90s, and we expected the Red Sox to lose. Yeah, it was pretty pretty terrible. I loved my team, but I always kind of expected it. I, I remember watching with my dad, and when they'd somehow find a way to screw up, my dad would just say, well, that's the Red Sox for you. Anybody else? Anybody ever said something like that? Now, I work with middle and high school kids, most of them born in like the early 2000s. What do they expect? <laughs> Victory. <laughs> they expect nothing out of Boston sports teams but winning, 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 winning. Why? Because it's all they've seen. It's all they've known. They don't remember before Tom Brady. They don't remember the 86 years. They don't remember any of these things. And so when I talk to them, it's fascinating because their whole outlook on life has changed when it comes to being a Boston sports fan. Their expectations have changed. How they view themselves has changed. We're no longer the lovable losers. We've become the Yankees. (laughs) And it feels good. (laughs) Now, like, I know that's a little bit of a silly example, but it has changed their whole outlook. And I believe the same thing happens for us with Jesus. The birth of Jesus and the hope that it provides should change our whole outlook. It should provide us this new lens through which we see each other, through which we see the world. It should change how we think and it should change how we act. Because the birth and death of Jesus, if it's true, if his resurrection is true, it changes everything. We begin each day knowing that we are not alone. We begin each day knowing that God is there, that he has our future in his hands, and that he has proved it on the cross beyond a shadow of a doubt. It means I take a test knowing where my true approval and acceptance comes from. It means I go to work knowing where my true worth is found. It means... I look at the stock market knowing where my true security is found. It means I raise my children knowing that they are truly loved by God the Father, that he has their future in his hands, and that even though I am powerless at times to prevent future pain and hurt, that I know the one who will one day make it all right again for them. Amen? Amen. So we get to look at the future with peace and with hope, resting in what was done for us through the life of Jesus. This is a message that was passed on to us through Jesus' followers. Fast forward about 30 years. One of Jesus' best friends, a guy named John, recorded this story for us. It's a Passover meal, and Jesus, now as an adult and a rabbi, is leading this meal. And this is what he said to them. He said, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me so that you may also be where I am. All right, so this, this whole thing here, it might seem a little bit cryptic to you, but to everybody sitting around the table that night, they immediately said, oh, I know what he's talking about. He's talking about the Jewish betrothment kind of practice. So here's what happened. When a man and a woman were going to get engaged or betrothed, They wouldn't just pick each other out. It wasn't about romance. It wasn't about love. It was usually the father of the groom that would make the match. And then the groom would go, and they would offer the betrothment, and it was kind of more of a legal process. And when you were betrothed, you were legally committed to one another, just like in marriage. But then then the man would go away. 
He would go away and he would prepare a place for her. What the King James, if you grew up reading that, translated a mansion. My father's house has many mansions, but really just means dwelling place or abode. So he would go off and he would create this place for her, and she wouldn't know when he would come back. It could be up to a year that she would be at home, she would be preparing for her future with her family, she would be getting ready, doing all of these things, but for up to a year she would be here and she would not know the time and place. But interestingly enough, neither would he. Only his father could tell him when it was time. And at some point his father would say, you're ready, let's go, and he would gather up all of his friends and his family and the musical instruments, and they would go marching off, and they would go to her house, and it would be a party, and they would take her, and they would all go back. Both of the families, they would go back, and they would celebrate, and the marriage would then be fully enacted. 30 years ago, 30 years before this dinner that Jesus is having, his mother was in the same process. She was home. She was waiting. She didn't know when Joseph would come back. And that's when Gabriel shows up and tells her about Jesus. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that he is going away, that he will prepare a place, that he will come back, that the Father will tell him when it is time, and then he proves that this is true through his death and his resurrection on the cross. This is why we have hope. It's the reason for our hope. I mean, we we await the return of the bridegroom, confident in his power and his ability because of what he did on the cross. Amen? This is why we are a people of hope. And this changes everything. It, it, It doesn't mean that we are blind to pain and suffering. It doesn't mean that we turn a blind eye, that we show up here on a Sunday and that we just say, you know, how you doing? I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. It doesn't mean any of that. I mean, that kind of living is a lie. It just means that we face it differently. The Apostle Paul put it beautifully in the letter he wrote to the early church in Thessalonica, and this is what he said. He said, brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind to have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. We do not mourn or grieve or suffer as those without hope. It doesn't mean we don't do any of those things. It doesn't mean that we will not face suffering or pain or persecution. It doesn't mean that things won't happen that are unfair or broken. It doesn't mean that we won't suffer. It just means we face it differently because we are a people of hope. And that changes everything. Two, two years ago, we suddenly lost my, my aunt. And it was, it was the kind of suddenly where you wish you could have said something. You know, you, you wish you could have actually said goodbye last time rather than see you later or whatever, whatever it was. And, and, and I found myself right afterwards, I found myself sitting on the couch and Liz with her arms around me and me weeping, just wishing that I could say like one more thing. And it was hard. It was really hard. And yet it was hard on the whole family. We all mourned, we all grieved, and we all suffered, and we all cried together. But we did not mourn as those without hope. And that made all the difference. My mom actually wrote this in a blog post, and I loved it. She said, Janine, you have not gone away. You have only gone before. Somehow you simply outran us in the quick race home. 
We don't mourn as those without hope. It's the reason that Simeon was able to say, Sovereign Lord, now let your servant die in peace. He wasn't pretending. It wasn't like he was, he was ignoring the reality of death. But the birth of this infant had caused him to change the way he faced it. I have seen your salvation, he said, which you've prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people, Israel. An extraordinary prophecy over a seemingly ordinary baby. It's interesting. As Advent ends, the church calendar lists these next several months as ordinary time. We go from this kind of hype and all the extraordinary stuff into ordinary time. But Jesus is about more than just the holidays. He is about more than just Advent because continually through the story of Advent, we see God breaking through the ordinary with extraordinary hope-filled results. And the story of Advent and the story of Jesus is a story of hope grounded in history, living today in the person of Jesus. It's an amazing thing. And as the church, we have the beautiful opportunity to bring this message of hope to those who need it just like we do. I mean, I don't know what trials you're facing. I don't know what pain you're facing this holiday as the lights go down and the radio stations stop playing, as the decorations go away, as the family and friends pack up and go home. I don't know what you're facing, but I do know that we get to face it together as a people of hope because of the life of this extraordinary man. And that hope is not meant to be just for me, not meant to be just for you. It's for our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers and our family. It is a beautiful gift that we get to have as we all face the uncertainty of future together. I found myself yesterday preparing for this and thinking about it. And I really, I really believe this strongly, and here's my challenge. If we will keep our eyes open... And if we will keep our hearts open to God, he will provide us with opportunities to share. Amen. Amen. We don't have to force it. We don't have to somehow have like a thousand and one ways to turn any conversation into Jesus. (laughs) Right? Like, how about those Red Sox? Oh, kind of like Jesus. You know? God provides opportunities. And it's one of the things about this life as a Christian that's exciting. It's an adventure. I'm wrestling with this text yesterday, and I'm like, I kind of put it down, and and we we took Truman down to the local park. And I'm just talking to another dad there yesterday. And this, just by the way, this does not happen to me all the time or often. Like, I'm not the kind of person who's always out there, like, trying to, I don't know, drum up a conversation. But I'm there, and I'm talking to this dad, and we get to, you know, what do you do? What do you do? And that leads us to talking about the church. And that leads us to talking about brokenness within the church. And then he says something along the lines of, you know, if I'm honest, there's brokenness everywhere in the world. And I was like, yeah, that's, 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 a, really, that's a really true and wise statement. And so I said, so, you know, I start talking about just like very naturally, well, you know, this is why we as a congregation, we've been talking all about hope. Because if it wasn't for Jesus, I would be hopeless. For thousands of years, we've tried to fix this situation, and for thousands of years, we have failed, except for Jesus, who proved it on that cross. And so I find myself talking about hope just naturally with this other dad. And it was an awesome conversation. I loved it. I found myself coming home saying, like, God, that's just like you, coming in right at the wire. (laughs) 
but he does this for us. It's an adventure. It's an amazing life to be a follower of Jesus. One real easy way, we're going to kick off a brand new teaching series next week. It's all about finding hope and finding belonging in that most incredible and important place for us, our homes and our families. Keep your eyes open this week. Think about who might need that. I bet you God brings somebody into your life that could use that message, that incredible gift. Another one of Peter or Jesus' friends, a guy named Peter, put it this way. He said, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the hope that you have. Wake up each morning, throw your legs over the edge of the bed, open your hands, and before you get up, just make it a practice to say, God, today, like, keep my eyes open. God, today, provide me with an opportunity. We find ourselves living life as an adventure rather than as a routine and as a chore. Because this sense of hope, it it really does change everything. I, I remember finding myself as a teenager in the midst of changing schools and changing friendships. I remember it giving me peace and security. I remember as a young college graduate starting out in ministry for the first time, feeling desperately like I had no idea what I was doing, but I knew the one who did, and that gave me peace and hope and security. I remember as a young father holding him for the first time and wondering what I was supposed to do, but thinking like, God, I know the one who does know what to do. I know the one who actually holds his whole future in his hands. I know the one who will be there for him after I am gone, and that changes the way I view his future as well. And even this morning, as a pastor waking up this morning with the butterflies in my stomach, with that little voice saying, like, you're not good enough, and the insecurity, and on all of those things, saying, like, no, that is not true. God, you have chosen this moment. God, you know what I need to say. You will give me the words. You will be there. Amen? Amen. Rather than face the future alone, we get to face it as a community. We get to face it knowing that God is right there with us, that he has gone before us, that he has laid our path in front of us. And there is a beautiful peace and hope and assurance. It does not mean we were not promised that he would fix everything right now, here and now, in this life. In fact, we were promised that there will be pain and suffering in it. But we were also promised that he would never leave us or forsake us. So we walk into that differently. We view it differently. We do not grieve or mourn or suffer as those without hope. We do it together as a community, as the church, with hope. And it's a beautiful, beautiful gift that we were given and that we remind ourselves of every year at Advent. But it's not meant just for us. It's not meant for us to hold on to and to hoard. It's meant for us to share with others. So as Advent ends, as we head into ordinary time, as the season gets colder and darker, let us be a people of hope. Let us face the uncertainty of future together, knowing that God has been there with us the whole way, that he walks with us now and that he has our future in his hands, and let us share that extraordinary message of hope and what it means to know Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for giving me the words to say. I thank you for speaking through me up here. Lord, I thank you for the fact that I am positive there are numerous people here who you are ministering to and speaking to. Little pieces of what I have said have just ignited like coals, like little pieces of fire in their hearts. Lord, do not let that go out. Lord, if you were speaking to people here who needed to hear you, I pray that you would continue to speak, that you would not let that 
that little ember burn out? Would you stoke it? Lord, I pray for our community. Would you be with us this season? Would you give us hope? Would you give us a future? Would you give us the words to say? And more than that, Lord, I ask, would you be with each and every one of us as we head back into our lives? Would you provide us clear and ample opportunities? And when you do, Lord, would you just give us the words? Would you amaze us as the Holy Spirit flows out from us and these beautiful words of hope and meaning come out? Would you lead us deeper into the adventure of life with Jesus? We pray this in his holy name. In the name of Jesus, amen.